First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Let us pray. With these words, God Almighty, we are introduced to the divinely inspired first epistle of Peter. We ask and pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to understand the importance and the usefulness of this book for our lives in this day and age, especially in 2020-2021. God above, may we understand who Peter is and how you raised him up as an apostle, and what it means, Lord, to be a pilgrim, and the importance of the gospel in our pilgrimage in this world. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds this morning. Amen. I can say we live in interesting times, and that would be an understatement. And if we think about it, if we understand the ancient Near East culture, understand the Roman Empire, the multicultural Roman Empire in which the different cultures were forced together by the iron will of Rome, and the laws that they had, the partial laws, if you were a full citizen like Paul, you had rights, otherwise you didn't. Not much to speak of. And you understand, of course, the Christian situation in which they were not officially recognized by Rome. Like not having a 501c3 or something like that, right? They weren't officially recognized by Rome. At the time, of course, they were protected because they were just considered a sect or a a subdivision of Judaism. But that was going to change quickly, as we see in Acts. We're finishing up that. We finished Acts. That's why we're in Peter now. By the time of Peter, probably written in 60 to 68 AD, the division was becoming clearer. Christianity was a different religion. It is a different religion, although it has roots in the older Judaism, not the new stuff. A lot of changes since then, the last 2,000 years. And so from that perspective and those details of the ancient Near East, we see that our world, is closer to Peter's world than, say, the Reformation or Calvin's world, in which there was the ascendancy of the gospel, of the Protestant faith, of the truth of the Bible, the influence they had in Geneva and parts of France and in England and America. It's astounding. And in fact, in many ways, today, our society and the laws and the place of Christianity's influence and power within America is closer to Peter's time than that of our founding father. I bring this up to remind us, because it's relevant to the book of Peter, paganism is on the rise as much as paganism was at its full power and flowering during the time of Peter. The influence of Christianity is on the wane as much as The influence of Christianity was virtually non-existent during the time of Peter. Because Peter mentions explicitly persecution more than once. He was dealing with Christians in his audience who were being persecuted one way or another. They were outnumbered, outgunned. They had virtually no legal protections unless they happened to be a full Roman citizen. And even then, you see what that means, like in the case of Paul. 
And so even though we are not persecuted and hounded the way they were in the early church, although it's not clear from the book of Peter what how much the persecution was, it doesn't seem to be as bad as it was about 50 years later or 100 years later, about 150 A.D. onward after the time of Justin Martyr. The persecution ramped up. There were considered basically 10 major persecutions until the time of Constantine in 313 when Christianity was officially recognized and, in fact, dominated politically at the time. But, even so, it should still speak to us today. I know I've said over the last several years, I don't like to use the word persecution for the American church, but it's something. We are being hemmed in, we are being cut down, people are losing their jobs and the like. Hated churches have been, especially this year as we've seen, uh, attacked. Burned. You may say, wow, it was the Roman Catholic Church, it was the Anglican Church. Brothers and sisters, to the world that grew up not going to church, it means nothing to them. It's just a church. It's the same. As far as they're concerned, we're in that church, and they want it to burn down like it was. So, it's not exactly the same as Peter's time? Yes. Praise be to God. There's a lot of overlap if you think about it. And that's why I find it a relevant book for us to continue on after the book of Acts. So let us go to the opening words of the inspired text to understand how it speaks to us today. The first point, Peter the Apostle, or the Apostle Peter, keep the, the P's going here, Peter, Pilgrims, and the, and the preaching of the gospel. The life of Peter, who Peter is, and where he grew up, and the like, we don't know much of his early childhood, virtually nothing as is the case for many in the New Testament and the Apostles. It is Christ and a few others in the Old Testament that we know of their childhood, like David. In many other cases, we know very little. But what we do know of Peter is quite fascinating, it seems, and I think we can argue clearly he is probably the most known Apostle of the New Testament with respect to his personality besides Paul. Paul, we don't have a lot of what he did, we have a lot of what he wrote. Peter, we have a lot of what he did, because he's in the Gospels. Some of the details are there. One of the first things that comes to your mind probably is, is Peter the quick-mouthed or the hot-headed. He was quick to answer. Who do people say that I am? It's Peter who jumps before all the other disciples and says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That kind of a question was asked twice, and Peter gave, in those cases, uh, an answer before the other apostles. He was quick to speak. He's also quick to deny three times. He denied knowing Jesus, even to the point of cursing, if you recall. So that which was used for good was also used for evil in his life. And that is related to perhaps another description of his, almost the same, being impulsive, going back and forth and saying things quickly, uh, without thinking perhaps. We read, for example, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid, as Jesus walked across the ocean during a storm. <laughs> and what did Peter do? Then Peter answered and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you in the water. And he said, Come. When Peter had come out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. The other disciples go out. No, it was Peter. I mean, Peter's the one. Apparently that if you were to do what I did as a young man and walk on ice through the stream in the winter through the cattails over there up in Westminster, I made sure my 
sister went first. Peter's the one who would go first and get his foot into the ice. Oops. And try another step. And I knew where not to go, but Peter found out for me. Peter's the one who walked out. And in this case, he's like, this is great. He answers, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He answers correctly. Here, he comes out to Jesus and walks on water because he believes it's Jesus. And Jesus will protect him. This is great. And yet, he turns around and while he looks at the water and he begins to think. <laughs> His impulsiveness, that is, he was quick to do things before he was fully committed, apparently. Or fully understand it. Like in the case of Jesus, right, where he says, you are the Christ, that is the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one of the Old Testament, come to save his people, the Son of God. He also turns around and tells Jesus, you should not have to go to the cross. So he didn't understand the full implications of what it means to confess Jesus as the Messiah, which is also to confess his job and his duty, what it means to be the Messiah, which is to die, to suffer. And Peter didn't want that. What did Christ, what did Christ do? He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. This is the same Peter. No, we don't have a description of anyone else like this. This kind of detail, back and forth, impulsiveness, hot-headedness, quick to speak, but also quick to deny. Brave, yet foolish. All these characteristics go together. We, we know people like that. And Peter is one of those people like that. That is, they had different personalities, they had different strengths and weaknesses, different characteristics. He stood for the Gentiles at the sin of the Jerusalem. He first fought against it, but then he finally acknowledged it, right? When the sheet came down with all the different foods... I'm not supposed to eat. This is this, I'm a holy Jew, and God's like, it's not about being Jewish anymore. The Gentiles don't have to be Jewish? No. Okay, I'm gung-ho for it. But then what do we find out in the book of Galatians? Oops, he gets publicly rebuked by Paul. <laughs> for being embarrassed about being with the Gentiles because he was, he was around the Jews. As an apostle, which should remind us, one, it should comfort us in the sense that, yeah, the apostles had feet of clay too. They too sinned. They too were weak. So I shouldn't put them on a pestle and think, oh, I could never be like the apostles. Yeah, you can use the apostles as a pattern. Paul says, use me as a pattern. That is the best of me. Don't, don't follow the worst of me. Well, same with Peter. But it also uh, reminds us that even though uh, we are born again, even though we are born again, even called to office, it doesn't automatically change our personality, does it? Isn't that interesting? That's something as a side note to remind us not to preach a gospel that tells people all your problems go away and you're going to change your personality. That's not what the gospel does. The gospel changes your soul. It redeems you. It brings you to heaven. It makes you love the law and love Christ and want to be holy. It doesn't necessarily change your characteristics. That is your personality. So he was brave yet foolish. He was impulsive and inconsistent. But for all his fluctuations and the like, Christ chose Peter for his glory and for the good of the church. And he made him an apostle. As only Christ can choose someone to be an apostle. It's not an excuse to find a hot-headed, impulsive person to make him a church officer. That's not what I'm saying. People will draw that conclusion in the church. But God's gracious in Christ. Christ knew he was picking because Christ was also God. He knew it was in the heart of men. We don't. We have to use the outward standards of what it means to be human, and we should not pick impulsive people to be leaders. I want to make that clear right now. 
It was unique. Apostles are unique. That's what we're getting to this point. The ministry of Peter was a ministry of being an apostle, a unique office, chosen especially by Christ. Who what? Knew the hearts of men. Now he can pick them in a way we can't pick people like that. Of course, he was first a disciple, called by Jesus, as he called all 12 of his disciples, that is, the closest followers of him. He had other followers, as we know, and many others, and the women alike. But this was a Jewish practice in which they would follow a rabbi or a teacher or a master and learn from him. Jesus followed that tradition to a certain extent, but also uh, broke some of the tradition's rules, as it were. But more or less, he followed the culture approach to instruction, which is they would follow their master wherever he went and be with them every day. It was a hands-on apprenticeship program. And he had 12 such disciples who, as we know, eventually became the apostles. Now, it wasn't just Peter being one of 12. It was Peter being what? One of three of 12, remember? And we go through the Gospels, we see a clear pattern in which uh, Jesus, James, uh, Peter, James, and John were the closest to Jesus. Right? He calls them up to prayer time. They come, come to him at special times. He calls them and speaks to them uniquely as opposed to the others. And so even within the circle, Christ had those closest to him. By his grace and mercy, it was his decision. Peter was one of those. As an apostle, an apostle is a special uh, office, a messenger who especially represents the one who sent him. See the apostles is to see Christ and his ministry in a unique way that you don't see through the, your own life or, or my life as a minister. They had to be eyewitnesses of Christ. That's how it worked for Paul. Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. Physical body, he saw him. Whereas I have not. I can never be an apostle. He was directly called by Christ. Many people saw Jesus, of course. We know uh, there were hundreds, if not thousands of them. Thousands, in fact, uh, in John 6, who got fed and the like. But it had to be called directly by Christ. Christ had to say, you're an apostle. And of course, given that special calling, and given that special requirement of being an eyewitness of Christ, they were given the authority and the power to have miracles to attest to their message. When new revelation came about, miracles came about to attest that as they came alongside to reinforce the truth. It should be simple and it's sufficient that God has spoken to the mouth of a prophet, but God is a gracious God to his people. He knows the devil plays games, and so he says, I'm going to make sure you understand this message by giving miracles. And we have the miracles recorded in the New Testament era. There is no more new revelation, so there's no more miracles, is there? We don't expect anything added to the Bible. So we should expect no more miracles and therefore no more apostles. It's a temporary office. As an apostle, however, he, Peter, contrary to the Roman Catholic Church, was not given the bishopric or the popery that is the fatherhood of leading the entire church, like the Roman Catholic Church falsely claims, so-called church with false claims. We see some of this humility of Peter in 1 Peter 5.1. Even though he's an apostle and has unique office, he writes, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder or presbyter. And we know the apostles at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 didn't decide for the church, did they? Isn't that interesting? It was the elders and the brethren of the church with the apostles decided this is the path we shall take. Showing as much authority the apostles had, uh, they were not going to run the, 
the church and call the shots. It was a meeting of God's leadership along with the apostles. And so there is no hierarchical approach to the church that way. He did not lord it over others. It's very clear in First Peter and in Second Peter and in his life. Here in this book, Peter wrote this book. Peter wrote the book as an apostle. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a divine messenger, one who specially set aside to speak the message of Jesus. He wrote it, as I said earlier, perhaps around 60 to 68 A.D. Uh, the tradition is he may have died about 68 A.D., supposedly upside down on a cross. We don't know. That's just verbal tradition. The location of the epistle, he mentions the city of Babylon. Some take that as the actual city. Others take it as metaphorical for Rome, right? Uh, the terrible city. The audience, the audience here in these various regions, Galatia and Bithynia and Cappadocia and Asia and whatnot, uh, these named areas represent millions of people across an area roughly the size of Turkey or America's southwest from Texas to California, which is about 750,000 square miles. Pretty big, isn't it? That's his audience. We don't know how many Christians, of course, in that large region there in Turkey. But there was enough, as we, you may recall, I'll go over this next sermon when I talk about what it means to be a pilgrim, in Acts, there are many, many churches there, and you can see the path. They have paths in the back of your Bible going through Turkey, down from uh, the armpit area in Syria, on Antioch, on the way on the southern coast, all the way up to Greece, and eventually to Rome. All little churches there, and there's even strong indications, not just a single church, but a collection of churches, a regional, named after a region called a presbytery. <clears throat> I think the audience was probably Gentiles with a Jewish training that is adherents at the time they were called, right? God-fearers who were going to the Jewish synagogue and learning, but they weren't, or they either were or weren't full-on uh, members of the Jewish community at the time, but then learned a lot of Bible. Others think he's writing explicitly to Christian Jews. But we read in 1 Peter 4.3, for example, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. That is a typical description of Gentiles. It is not the typical description of Jewish sins, especially in the New Testament era. We've gone over some of the passages where they're wrestling and arguing against the Jews, i.e. the book of Acts, right? And that's not a description of what they're dealing with. What they were were a bunch of hypocrites playing a religion like the Pharisees, Right? We see the picture of the Jews and their sins during the time of Christ. This is not one of them. This is not a typical picture, even of what we know of the ancient Near East of that time and descriptions of the complaints. Because there were godly Jews who complained about ungodly Jews. But they were not typically complaining about them doing the will of the Gentiles, walking in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, that is, in drinking parties. That wasn't a common Jewish problem. That's why I think it's probably Gentiles he's writing to. Now, there are a lot of Old Testament references in First Peter. You have to know your Old Testament Bible. And uh, that is one argument, so I won't argue, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, to say that the audience is mostly Jewish. Maybe it's mostly Jewish with a few Gentiles, or like I said, I think probably Gentiles with Jewish training. 
Hence the reference is Old Testament knowledge. Either way, they're Christians. They're followers of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if they're Jew or Gentile, does it, in the New Testament? We don't believe it's significant anymore when it comes to being saved and being part of the body of Christ. And he uses an interesting description here, the dispersion. It's a word used of the Jews spread across the Roman Empire. So again, it could be used literally here. Jewish Christians spread across this empire, or metaphorically, you are uh, the Israel of God. You read that in Galatians, right? Galatians chapter 6. We are the uh, spiritual Jews, the circumcision of the heart. Any, that is, who are biological Jews or not, are that. It's not about being Jewish anymore. So again, either way, it doesn't matter. The themes in the book of First Peter here are doctrinal and practical. The doctrinal is about salvation and its implications. He mentions many times about Christ's death and the implications of that death, and Christ's suffering, and the implications of that suffering, Christ's work and redemption for his people, and the implications of that redemption and work for God's people. And he ties those doctrines to Christian living. Being a mother and a father, a husband and a wife, being a worker at a business. Calling and vocational life are tied to the gospel. Practically, of course, when he talks about your life as a husband or wife, as a master or a slave or a worker today. In those well-known passages later on in chapter 3 and 4, he talks about what it means to submit, what it means uh, to live in this world and doing our calling and vocation in life, even though we are pilgrims. And that's one of the practical ways in which he speaks to the situation, of course, the persecution. You are pilgrims. You are being persecuted. Nevertheless, you still are called to be a good husband, a good wife, a good slave, a good master. And the persecution there is another uh, main theme here. There are many passages that seem to speak of insults and even one passage about beating. And we know historically there may have been riots, threat of riots and the like. I mentioned that again in Acts. You see the riots there. It's just so amazing how it ties into 2020. And I fear 2021, but I hope not. Nothing new under the sun, they say, right? Second point. So that's Peter. Peter the Apostle. Peter, his life, his ministry, his book, what it's about. And now we have Peter and the pilgrims. That is, I'm going through these verses here, and I'm going to unpack them in the next few sermons. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Secondly, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. Peter and the pilgrims. Or strangers. There's different English translations. There are, there are two different words actually used in New Testament era, common, uh, New Testament books here commonly. The word stranger or exile denotes a temporary resident, a traveler whose, whose stay is measured in weeks or a few months. Then the other word in 1 Peter 2.11 we read, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. Right? So there's two different words there, like you see in the English. Abstain from flesh and lust, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. There the word is alien, or sojourners, is similar to the other word pilgrim, but suggests a long-term resident. It could describe an immigrant from a distant place who has lived in another land for several years, started a career, and even found a home. In those New Testament words, echo the Old Testament categories as well. Those are the same two categories you have in the Old Testament. You don't know it often because you don't know Hebrew, 
But depending on translation, they're consistently used the word alien or stranger in the Old Testament. And there are two types. One who's temporarily there, uh, like they set up shop, like a carnival or something, you know, uh, the farmer's market, right, for a few, for a few months or a few weeks, and they're gone. And then you have another one, the resident alien, some translations are, that are there for many, many, many months, even if not years, who seem to be a neighbor who's there for a long time, but he's never been a full citizen of Israel, and therefore does not have all the rights of Israel. Same idea here in these two words. It's quite interesting. Apparently it's a common practice in the ancient Near East. I know we like to talk about the uniqueness of Israel. There's a lot of uniqueness, to be sure, but there's also lots of commonality of their laws and their way and approach to life as to the rest of the cultures around them. And this is one of them, that they have a twofold approach to what it means to be a stranger. <laughs> and of course, Highlighting the fact that they're sojourners and pilgrims, he's reminding them that they're supposed to be holy and separate from the world, and also giving them a heavenly mindset in the midst of persecutions to remember that we are not long for this world, that heaven is our country. The nature of pilgrimage, I'm not going to go into details, but just give you a summary here. Uh, The origins, that is to be a stranger or pilgrim, emphasizes that our origins are not here, but we are from somewhere else. It's a relative term. We're strangers to what? To a place we're at. In this case, the world. This physical existence, because we are heavenly. We are supposed to go to heaven because that's where our origin is. The Spirit came to us, gave us a new life. It's a spiritual origin. That's what it means to be born again. And that's why we are pilgrims and strangers. Our origin is different. And therefore, our destination is different. Our work in this world is not for this world, but for God's glory. And is a preparation for heaven. Purify us, to sanctify us, so that we can be prepared for heaven. That's what this earth is for. And I know there's confusion about this point, because people like to use these passages. Uh, Again, I've mentioned this before. It's important because living in a post-Christian, now becoming more anti-Christian, we're going to call it now, uh, culture in America, uh, one of the temptations Christians have is to quickly Quote texts out of the Bible such as, well, we're pilgrims, so why bother voting? Why bother polishing brass on a sinking sinking ship, right? And so we're told to disarm ourselves and not do what we can to protect our families and our churches. And I'll talk about that uh, later. That's not what Peter's talking about. And we'll see that simply by the fact that although we are passing through, we still are supposed to pass through and do good. He doesn't say, you know, you're pilgrims, so you're wives, why bother submitting to your husbands? It's just a temporary thing. This world's passing away. You husbands, why, why love your wives? Why be considerate as the weaker vessel? We're just passing through. What's the point? They don't use the text that way, do they? Well, maybe they do, depending on what church you go to. But clearly, Peter is not saying that, because Peter, I just quoted Peter. Peter tells you. Even though you're pilgrims, you're still supposed to do godly things in this world, supposed to do good things. Being a stranger doesn't mean you don't care where you are, where you live, and the people around you. It's about doing the right thing, even though you are in a strange country. Peter shows how to live like a stranger. It means doing the right thing and following your vocation in life. And thirdly, Peter in the Gospel. Peter witnessed the gospel firsthand, that is the good news of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Can you imagine seeing Jesus in the flesh? 
walking with him and eating with him and listening to him and being berated by him. (laughs) Peter met Christ. He experienced sin. He denied Christ three times in one night. Imagine having a wife or a family member or a husband who denied and cursed you and your family. That's what it was like. And yet Jesus, Jesus forgave him. You read at the end of the gospel. And restored him back to the fullness of his ministry. So he experienced the grace of God. He experienced the gospel. Peter knows about the gospel. Peter knows about living in the gospel, in light of the gospel. Peter's gospel, as we see here, is not just a generic gospel of the Unitarians, which I don't think they even exist anymore. I think they all just went whole, whole hog uh, pagan or atheists in the mainline churches. He believed in the same gospel as Paul. He believed in a Trinitarian gospel. And we see it right here in this text, verse 2. To the pilgrims, to we Christians who are strangers in this world, dispersed across this world, elect, we are the elect, according to what? To the foreknowledge of God the Father, one, for the, uh, in the sanctification of the Spirit, two, for the obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, three. Three members who are involved in three different parts of our salvation. Right here, in one verse. If you recall in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, one of my favorite passages, is the great doxology of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In First Peter, we read about our heavenly blessing and heavenly places in Christ Jesus by the Father, where the Father selects us. We are ordained before the foundation of the world, where all things are according to his foreknowledge and coordination. The Father selects, the Son saves, and the Spirit sanctifies. In that order, he talks about the Father, then he talks about the Son, and the blood of the Son, then he talks about the Spirit, you're sanctified in the Spirit, and the Spirit is a guarantee of your salvation. At the end there, verses 13 to 14, right? Here, the order is a little different, but it's still what? The Father who elects us, according to the foreknowledge of the Father, the Spirit who sanctifies us, that's the same, and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul mentions the blood of Jesus Christ. Peter is giving them equal weight in our salvation. He is blessing them. He is saying, it is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who saves you. And they each have done their part. What we call the economic trinity. The roles with respect to redemption that the Father and the Son have designated to themselves and exercised for our good. Peter and Paul are saying the same thing, brothers. It's the same gospel message. The same trinity. One God in three persons. And that's good news and encouraging indeed. Peter applies this gospel truth to the lives of the saints, to their vocation, to their persecution, as we will see. Peter's preaching, the preaching of the Trinitarian gospel, to preaching of the good news, to preaching of even Christ being our pattern, in fact. Peter, like Paul, uses Christ's life and death as a pattern for us. Christ suffered. Why should you be surprised you're going to suffer? Oh. Okay, And so we learn to live and to suffer patiently as our Lord suffered patiently. And we continue to trust in Christ no matter what happens. This is 
Peter's gospel. This is Peter's instruction and sanctification and walking the light of Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord for the epistle of Peter. Praise the Lord for our pilgrim status. Praise the Lord for the preaching of the triune gospel by Peter. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, God above, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for electing us according to your foreknowledge, for sanctifying us, and for drawing us towards obedience, sprinkling of the blood of Christ Jesus. Lord God above, that we would continue to walk in the light of the gospel, be encouraged in spite of persecution, and to carry on the perseverance in our vocation and calling in life. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.